College is supposed to be hard, right? Harder than high school anyways, for sure. So how do you get ready for it? There are pretty much two main college prep programs in the United States, AP and IB. And lots of people, when asked if they've heard of IB, go, that's like AP, right? Well, yes and no. It's pretty different, in fact. For starters, while AP is a mainly American institution, IB is a truly globalized curriculum where everybody in the program studies the same stuff from Kinshasa to Kentucky. We're seeing its prominence rise as the choice for a more globally mobile population of international high school students. That's mainly kids coming from outside the United States into this country to go to college because we still are really not seeing much of a phenomenon in the other direction. So today, I talked to the person at the top of the IB, Dr. Siva Kumari, Director General of the International Baccalaureate. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin, and I'm an admissions counselor who talks to interesting people about the wonderful world of college and college admissions. There are almost 5,500 IB programs offered in about 140 countries worldwide, which include the primary years program, middle years, and most well-known, the diploma program for high school-age students. Dr. Kamari gets into it a little bit, but the biggest differences for high school students between AP and IB is that IB is assessed internationally. In addition to having to take exams across six different subject areas, which you can't take if you haven't taken the course, key difference there with AP, students also have to complete a 4,000 word research paper called the Extended Essay. Take a course called Theory of Knowledge and complete 150 hours outside the classroom in areas of creativity, action, and service. It's a comprehensive program spanning the last two years of high school and it's tough. So as opposed to AP, where you can pick and choose which courses you take at that advanced level, IB is taught across six main subject groups, language and literature in your native language, usually the acquisition of a new or a second language, individuals and societies, sciences, mathematics, and the arts. Oftentimes, this freaks kids out because they don't want to take every subject at that level. But as you'll hear from Dr. Kumar, there are options for students who may not have particular proficiencies in a given subject group. It's much less known than AP, mainly to families in this country, but it's quite well known to people on my side of the equation in colleges. It's also growing like crazy abroad, almost 50% overall worldwide, including a near exponential growth in China. I hope it's not a surprise to anybody at this point that the distances between places on this earth are getting smaller, therefore increasing, I would argue, the need to understand these places, their people, their languages, their histories, and politics all the more. So IB comes in at a critical time, even though it's been around since the 60s. So let's hear why Dr. Sivakumari thinks so too. Bonus, if you listen carefully, you can hear what you'd think would be the sound of email arriving into her inbox. But in fact, every time you hear that sound, an IB student gets their diploma. We spoke via Skype from her office overlooking the World Forum in The Hague. So you're in The Hague? I am in The Hague. Do you want to see uh, the World Forum? Do I? I've, where, never been, uh, I've never been there. Well, it was where uh, President Obama held the security speech. See. So you can see it outside my window. But uh, Wow. Well, the people listening won't be able to see it, but trust me, it's spectacular. So um, how, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How th are you? Um, I'm okay. I got a speeding ticket yesterday. That's not good, Devin. It's not good. I'm not proud of it. How do they deal with speeding tickets in The Hague? I don't know because I don't own a car. Oh, that's probably the right move. Yeah. Anyways, I would imagine it's probably handled much in the way that it's handled here unless like you're speeding and you're Joseph Coney or something, <laughs> right? Then it becomes a problem in The Hague. But as they say, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, so how uh, you've been traveling a lot. Yes. Where have you been going? Um, well, typically my travel um, is between the um, four offices that we have. So it's between Singapore, um, Geneva, Cardiff, Wales, The Hague and Bethesda. So those are the, my frequent travel spots. But then then I have to do other things. In fact, um, Tracy just came by, who keeps me um, keeps me honest, and showed me the number of flights that I've done this year. 
Uh-huh. It is very, very scary. So I'm barely in um, one place in two weeks. There's typically a different place every week. So let me let me just ask you a, a few questions. I did. Uh, I sent a couple in advance. I think they haven't, you know, veered too much from that. But I, I guess I just want to know. Uh, give me the elevator pitch for the International Baccalaureate. What is it? How do you describe it to people that have no idea what it is that you do? So the International Baccalaureate is, at its heart, a not-for-profit that is very, very mission-driven to create education for a better world. Um, That's our focus. So we believe in high standards, but we also believe in the individual doing good. So it's about high academic standards, but also high social um, standards of what we want children from. And the unique aspect about this organization, which continually fascinates me, is that we do end-to-end. So we, if you take the child, we work from age three up until 19 when we hand over to universities such as yours. But we also do end-to-end in we create our own curriculum, we create our own services, and we create our own assessment. Typically, people use suppliers for all of this. Um, so we do all of those ourselves because we believe that we're, what we're designing is a curriculum. We want to evaluate the same things. We want to assess the same things. So our job is to ensure that there's an end-to-end, um, end-to-end process around why we're doing the things we're doing. And the thing that I'm, you know, that that, that makes it, I think, mostly unique and uh, to people in this country is that it is a wholly internationalized program, right? In that you, uh, people in Tanzania are taking more or less the same coursework, if not the same coursework, as students in Cleveland. Yeah, and the standards by which they're evaluated are the same. So, and they're evaluated by examiners who could be from any part of the world. So the kid in Tanzania and the kid in um, Rochester might be examined by someone in um, Scandinavia, right? Why do you do it that way? Well, we believe in the internationalism of this thing, right? So, so we believe that it has to be internationally created, internationally implemented, and then internationally assessed. So when we do that, we have to be very, very clear in our minds about what it is we want exactly assessed. And there's no better way to do that than to be explicit about, um, about what the questions are, what the criteria are. You know, teachers know it, examiners know it, and hopefully students know it. And, of course, in this country, the thing that is most, I mean, that that I students and parents and, and folks in secondary schools and college admissions counselors all know very well is advanced placement. And advanced placement is very different from IB. How would you distinguish IB from advanced placement? I got introduced to the IB because I was doing work with the advanced placement. So um, I know I belong to one of the advisory groups and I've done a lot of work while I was at Rice University with um, with the advanced placement group. So, so I'm, I know it. And I think that the, the, both programs are interested in high standards. And advanced placement was born in uh, America to serve as that, um, that course, right, that emulates a college-level course in high school. And I think they do that very well. The difference between what their ambitions are and ours is that we were born internationally. Uh, the, the core group that created the IB came from all parts of the world. There were the French, the German, the uh, English, and others. The other thing is that you know uh, any teacher in any school can start an AP program and decide to de- teach the AP course and get on with it and give the students the experience that the AP gives. I think unlike that, the IB is a program. So we authorize schools, so they have to go through a process um, by which they evaluate themselves. They have to go through a process with their teachers and they have to go through a process with their parents before we authorize the school to become an IB school. And uh, so it's a holistic program. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we have uh, a point of view that students have to do all subjects before they graduate. So they have to do uh, humanities, they have to do the sciences, they have to do the arts, um, but also something we call the core. Uh, which is we want the student to think deeply about um, philosophy. So how do how do we know what we know? It's called a theory of knowledge course, one of my favorite courses. And the other thing that as a university uh, member I was fond of was that the extended essay, this 4,000 piece of or- piece original research that we asked. So that whole thing, and, and then, of course, the action and service where we want the student to experience um, 
what it is like to make a change, a small change in someone's life or a big change in the community. You know, how, how, how are you the initiator of the change? So I think that's what makes the IB different. It's not individual courses, although you know some students do take individual courses in, in the U.S. It's about the whole program. Why is it important that it's a whole program as opposed to individual courses? What is it about that that makes EIB function in a fashion that is central to its mission? Well, I, I think, you know, because it is that we are creating a, a, a human being who is able to think both with the heart and the mind. And you can't do that with just classes. You need other stuff. Well, you need other stuff, right? I mean, I mean, I went through a program where I was very, very good in the in the sciences because that's what I loved mm -hmm. and, you know, didn't study art history, which, you know, leaves kind of a gaping hole in your knowledge base essentially. But what if you don't want to study art history? Well. <laughs> what if there's something that you just hate and you know you hate it and you just don't want to have to explain to people why you just know it deep down that you hate it and don't make me take this? You first need to know what it is before you can say I don't want to do it, right? So you need to at least be introduced to it. Is that what you're saying? Need to be introduced to it, need to be able to have your mind flex in all of those ways. You know, and specialization is an important thing. So you have college to be specialized, you have your master's and you have your doctorate to get a deeper and deeper and deeper into what you love. But you need to know what's out there. And, you know, because think about it once you get your, I mean, think about the nanotechnology scientists. I mean, they're all deeply discipline oriented, but the, the work that comes out of the interdisciplinarity is, I think, something else that we're very, very interested in. Yeah, and that's something that we've, you know, identified, and I think a lot of colleges really appreciate about the IB is that it is, it, it does set students up to think about the intersection between disciplines. Yeah. Because these problems out there are very interdisciplinary. Yeah, right? yeah. So is, do, you, do you view IB as, I mean, obviously we talked about it being as, uh, both a sort of socio-emotional uh, development uh, program in addition to academic. I mean, do, but do you, do, you all, do you view it as really wholly a college preparatory program or, or is it more than that? And do we expect the students that are coming from the IB program to necessarily go to college? Uh, I, I would expect them to go where they feel the next uh, step you know, is most beneficial to their uh, preparation for life, right? Because some student may decide that, you know, they want to take a year and actually get some different kind of um, life experiences, or they might feel like, I'm ready, I want to get to college and get this, um, get this done. Um, and I think we prepare them for any of those scenarios because we taught them to think, to discern, to, um, you know, to make decisions for themselves. That's what I hope we've prepared an IB child for. Um, so, so I think, yes, we prepare them for college. And I, I think we have the statistics to show that in, in the U.S., you know, they can easily um, uh, function at the, um, at the sophomore level immediately. They can persist through their studies really, really well. And the completion rates are high and the kind of courses they take are high order courses. So I hope we prepare them for the college if that's where they want to go. And I hope we prepare them for work and life if that's where they want to go. Right. And now I think that uh, I'm not talking out of school. No pun intended. <laughs> when I say that I think the AP is really exclusively functioning, right? Those, those courses are college preparatory courses. They're set up in such a way that they really are congruous in terms of schedule with the American application process and admissions process. The courses are uh, widely accepted for credit and advanced placement. And so do you, do you see yourself as a competitor or as sort of a complement to AP? How do you think about that? Yeah, I, th I think we are. I think, you know, there are two pathways a child can go through. I mean, my own daughter went through AP and uh, she's a and she landed on her feet. Yes, very well. And so the, um, the, the, the point is, you know, we, we also, that the IB student also gets university credit for those courses. Um, and, um, you know, in big states like Texas, Florida, and California, we get really good recognition at the university level for that. And the student gets exempt from, I hear, the first year of, uh, of um, university. So... We, we are benchmarked equally with that. I think the, when the Common Core um, work was being done, David Connolly over in Oregon did a benchmarking study and he compared us and AP and um, then I think the Massachusetts curriculum to design the Common Core. 
we get equivalency for our courses along with AP in the US, but in the UK, we get it with the A level. So yeah, so the course and the content are comparable. So the student is not going to be shortchanged by doing an IB program. Um, I will say that the IB student is doing a lot more. So I would argue that they need to be given a lot more credit than just for the individual courses, because doing all of those kind of courses and the core, essentially the student is doing nine subjects in, uh, in the high school if they're getting a full diploma. Um, and second language, and all, you know, I think it's a different kind of student if they did the full diploma. But yeah, we are comparable to AP, and we go through the same process of benchmarking our um, curriculum because I know the AP design process. Uh, we mm-hmm. go through the same kind of process. We see what's the best thinking out there in a particular subject, what's changing. Uh, we bring in inputs from the universities. We bring in inputs from uh, the societies, and then we design our courses with with our teachers. What do you think? I mean, you said that you think that some of these these students should should receive more credit for from for more than just the coursework that they're doing. What would that look like to you in college, or if there are places that are doing it, what does that look like? Well, I mean, I don't mean that credit being means uh, I should have not used that word in this context, but appreciation. But, yeah, is is um, they should. I mean, universities need to acknowledge that these students are markedly different right for having done i mean think of the preparation it takes to be able to do all of those courses in two years and um you know so the kind of individual that's coming in and contributing to that university is markedly different i'm not saying any less of the ap students i mean as i said my kid did it and she's um you know pushed herself equally hard as an ib but our program already does that so it's not like the student needs to design a path we design it for them and yet you know you mentioned that three states they're very big states with you know a lot of programs that have that have really solid recognition policies but you know 47 to go uh you know and it seems that and i know that you've got you know an entire division dedicated to this concept of recognition and making sure that students are equally appreciated uh, at least for the work that they do as, as in other college preparatory programs um are you be i mean how is that goal accelerating? How is that goal progressing in this country? Yeah, so, so I mean, I, the, the, I, the, I mentioned those three states because I think they've created statewide policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, you know, our students go um, into all of the top colleges and the universities and then many yes. other colleges as well. So we have no problem with recognition, not just in the U.S. So we call it recognition, the university recognizing the diploma. So if we have no problem with recognition in the U.S. or for that matter in the U.K., some of the top universities, um, you know, obviously take our students, welcome them and all of that. Um, so, so I think for us, it's a matter of continually emphasizing the value of the student mm-hmm. because what universities do is try to understand the IB through known lenses. So they usually tend to compare it to like what they know, which is easier to understand, like an AP is easy to understand. So I would want us, I would want us to advocate that the universities understand our students a little bit more and give them the proper proper respect that's due these students. So let me ask you this. What what does it mean for you that IB works? And you know, what's the most compelling evidence to, that you have to sort of demonstrate to people that this this in fact works, that you're achieving your mission? I think we have, we, we conduct rigorous research to show that, you know, we are, um, Staying true to what we're what we're what we're saying and keeping the you know we're, we're creating our um, statements based on what we know. So so we have like tons and tons of research to show um, that these students are doing well in university. They're staying the course. We've done studies in Chicago public schools where the IB has been more recently. Um, adopted and uh, to show that even if the child is not doing like a, you know, getting the highest score, even the little change in, in score is, is really um, showing vast um, improvement in, um, in those children's academic achievement, but also in the aspirations of where they want to go. So we have all of um, the research to show that we're doing what they do, but really, you know, um, the big things that I get a kick off, a kick out of are, you know, mostly Davin, is when I hear the stories of 
how these children make a difference, I get like markedly impressed. I remember stay, you know, in, in, um, in Montgomery Public Schools visiting a primary year program, which is our three to 11 year program. And this little kid, you know, must be all of, you know, seven years old or something um, that she prime precociousness. Yeah. <laughs> Age, yes. uh, she she um, yeah. was explaining to me, you know, we have the PYP learner profile. And so she was using all of those words and saying how she really did not like the situation in the in the mm -hmm. cafeteria where they were feeding, you know, the, the food was really greasy or whatever. So she did her evidence. She put her evidence together. She got a group together. They, it was a group project. And it's called a PYP exhibition, right? So this is this is part of our process. The children actually have to do so. It's not just you know feeling and talking and all. It's constructivism put to good use here. Um, so they she she made the change. She made the thing. She had the parent um, speech ready. She had the administrator speech ready. And you know she actually made a change and they had healthy food in the cafeteria. And those foods repeated over and over. And we have students, you know, creating, you know charities you know creating this taking something that bothers them and and making making something off it you know and actually i think what's what speaks to this is we actually have um some ib diploma graduates in uh, geneva actually who have created kind of a linkedin for good they call it's called good wall so i mean this is how inspired they were by the program that they decided that it is worth capturing the good that people do along with the experiences that we all gather for the academics and for the work you know so i think that part is what for me um we cannot collect enough so if we created a channel we would have so many of these stories of children making a difference and i think it yeah. is systematically this program allows for that space creates space for that says we need it in the world that we live in and creates that individual student agency that is i think pretty fantastic and they and it's true they do have great stories to tell and I've you know and it's something that I've talked to students about yeah. who are sort of wondering how to navigate the college admissions process and I've said hey if if all you do is talk about your experience in the international baccalaureate program then you know right there you've you've occupied a half hour of college mm -hmm. interview time with with some really great stuff and um, you know the stories matter obviously you know this is why at the like presidential nominating conventions, they don't yeah. just get up and rattle off data, right? <laughs> you know, they, they tell the good stories because it really strikes, and, and, and IB, I think, provides a really good opportunity for students to to have that. So relative to the, the American college admissions process, have you had to change, or have you seen IB had to, had to sort of make any sort of changes or anything to, to kind of be a little bit more accommodating in that way because, well, for a variety of reasons, but I also... You know, we know that we've got way more students in other countries who are coming to the United States uh, than ever have. And you've got IB programs that are growing uh, leaps and bounds in other countries almost with that right with that in mind that that it will catapult them to uh, an American or otherwise, you know, uh, other kind of uh, college education outside of their country. There's this new effort that we are um, going through. I understand it's going to be launched soon. Uh, we're, we're hoping to make it easier for universities to find IB students by creating um, a central space. You know, it's called a student registry. So we want to make it easier for our students to, um, you know, showcase themselves very well. And we want to make, give equal opportunity for universities to showcase themselves equally well because these students have choices. You know, there is the, 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 the issue of the student being able to fit, to, to persist and not needing extra help, you know, to, to settle in into a country, into a language, all of that. I think these students come prepared with all of that. They come prepared for the rigor. Um, they come prepared with language. They come prepared with an attitude and an open-mindedness and a want to engage with. Them. So all of those, I think, are really good things for higher education. The only difference is that we find in America... Um, a lot of the decisions are made based on the SAT score, which is unfortunate. So, uh, you know, so, so it seems like the, the way of thinking is, is quite different. And we are hoping that more universities will become like yours, where they're thinking of the child um, and the cohort more deeply. That, that being the University of Rochester. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think more American students don't go to college in other countries? Because in a lot of these places, it's, it's, it's cheaper, first of all. I have to say, I've never understood why 
there isn't like a reverse flow. And maybe that'll happen because, you know, um, the uh, it's a very interesting question. And it might be interesting to ask students, why do they not think of like high school students, why they not think of going outside? Maybe because there's such a vast system and vast network of universities that, first of all, people don't feel the need to leave the country. Um, you know, and maybe because it's so far been uh, nice, you know, there are huge state systems that provide very high quality education that the students can access. Maybe this is that. But, you know, we are seeing in, I mean, I'm now living in Europe, so I am seeing where um, some, you know, like Netherlands, for instance, is creating a network of universities that are going to, there's going to be true international tracks, i.e. the instruction is going to be in English um, and students are going to be welcomed. So maybe that'll change the scene a little. But I have to mm -hmm. say, I've never understood why children don't leave America to go study in other countries. Well, I understand, uh, you know, there's there's a strong pull to be to remain close to the parents, you know, and, and, and in most cases, that's coming more from the parents than it is from the kids. But it's still there. And then also, I know that, like, for instance, it would be really expensive, probably, to fly back and forth to, you know, the University of Queensland. But, you know, it, it, you've got the University of British Columbia and McGill and the University of Toronto and all of these places that are not that far away. They're probably closer in most cases. You know, for instance, the, you know, the University of Toronto is right across the lake from the University of Rochester. Uh, but students will choose to go, you know, many thousands of miles further to California or something. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting things are changing with education globally you've got more people who have more resources to access higher education who are getting better at learning how to access higher education faster mm -hmm. than they ever have um are these are these some trends that you're paying attention to and what are some other things internationally uh as far as global education is concerned that you're paying special attention to so that you can remain uh sort of agile and uh and responsive so I think, you know, the need for students to think um, internationally is becoming deeper and deeper, right? It used to be a nice thing for students to be able to do in the past. Um, I mean, as I, you know, I've told my own children that this is not an option anymore. You, you, you know, you have to think internationally because the person, even if you're in the same country, the person next to you typically has a different background. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because I'm in an international organization and that is true. You know, the person I just spoke to is one was a Canadian, one was a, a, um, a, a Brit, you know, so, so but that's that's our world. But that's not the, the, the reality is that, um, you know, enterprises are global now, organizations are global, but the thinking also needs to be global because you, you it's not just about local competition anymore. Even if you're doing something in America or you're doing something in Australia, you know, because there is no such thing as, um, I mean, there are still a few things as local, like a local bakery or a local, you know, bookstore or whatever, but most things are not um, local. So you have to be constantly aware of the of the global. Um, so I think that's a trend we play, pay co close attention to. Um, the other one is, of course, what The Economist has been saying for some years now, that the dominance of the East, you know, and, and uh, certainly... Um, uh, you, you know, I'm sure you've been reading about that in America as well. You, you know, all of us have to pay attention to uh, the the impact, the growing impact of economics in the East, right, and China's influence and all of that. So I think for us to think through um, what, are, what are the needs of, you know, those aspects, because as you said, we're seeing huge amounts of um, growth in, in all areas, in our international schools, um, in, in the East are, are growing at a rapid rate as well. So we have to think through, well, the nature of what is international needs to constantly be updated, right? What does it mean to think globally needs to be constantly updated? Thankfully, the, the prime principles are always, you know, remain the same. You need to be open-minded. You need to be able to um, think deeply and know which resources to think with, how to use your brain to think, you know, you need to... Um, stay organized you need to respect um other people just as you respect yourself you know you first you know and, and this is the thing when i go speak to schools i say all the time is you need to know who you are because you know a person like me who's in a country every other week if you don't know who you are you can become so swayed by everything else that you lose yourself so you have to have a strong sense of uh, you your family what matters to you and be very strong as an individual in a global world 
um, to function, to migrate, and to to land. So I think the the processing of you as an individual and understanding how to process you in other cultures, you know, and how you that becomes, I think, quite important. That's important. Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about. Um, that you have to have sort of an identity anchor uh, if mm-hmm. you're going to navigate. Yep. Really a lot of, I mean, we're all navigating very different kinds of situations all day, every day anyways, but especially if you're going to live in an internationalized community where people are bringing completely different sets of, of rules to the table, uh, cultural, political, and otherwise, that, it, that yeah. at least if you've got, uh, if you can sort of anchor yourself to some set of, 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 of a strong sense of identity, then that, that's going to help you navigate that stuff. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and be open to learning, right? Because there's some you can learn a lot from for instance you know when i've come to live here i really the emphasis that is placed on family life is really really interesting as opposed to work life you know so i mean so i think it's 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 important to understand what what have i what's my frame of reference and what can i learn from this culture that would be additive i mean we all have a choice as individuals to take something and uh, not take in something, you know, so I think forming that that core of what is uh, what is important to you is important. And then with children, I think, because they get so much information overload from everywhere and they, they, they have this, you know, real life and virtual life. And those two seem to be quite different for them than they were, say, for me. I think teaching children how to navigate that world, you know, how do you keep a sense of self in that kind of world would also be important. So I want to switch gears a little bit too and ask, you know, because I know that you've been doing some work in this area, uh, how does IB support or how is IB compatible with students who come from low-income households? With parents who perhaps are do, do not have, uh, maybe haven't gone to college before and, and, and don't have the experience to draw on to, to help students understand why this is of value to them. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we entrust our programs to our schools. So, you know, I'm really pleased in America, we have so many, um, you know, sorry, we call them state supported because it's a nomenclature for the world, but essentially districts or public schools, because public means something else in another part of the world. So I'm really pleased that in America, we have a lot of um, public schools who adopt this program. Um, And it is remarkable what it does for the students. And I, and I hope the, you know, we are preparing, we, we have a role in the schools that we ask the school to establish called a coordinator, a DPE, diploma coordinator. Sorry, I'm speaking mostly about our diploma program at this point. So, so I think for, for uh, we hope those coordinators are being, um, being sensible and encouraging the students, and they are, they're very, very caring individuals. So they hope they're encouraging the students to take the right set of courses and preparing, which is why I said at the beginning, before we authorize a school, we ask the school to consult with its parent community too, um, because you need that commitment for this program to work on all parts and mostly for the children, right? There should be a smooth, smooth operations there. So, um, I think I'm very pleased that, you know, many st- states, schools, or sorry, public schools in the U.S. have adopted uh, the program. Our you know, biggest footprint in the U.S. is in public schools. We, we have very few um, private schools that are enrolled in the IB. So, um, and that there is access to this program. I think we, we, we are working really hard at not raising our annual fees. So we've kept the annual fees at the same, you know, just inflation wise, we've increased it, but not in any other way. And our hope is to see how we can keep our costs down so that this program becomes more and more accessible to more um, more schools like that who, who want to adopt the IB, you know. But but, but, but it, it also would be good if there is a support for the program on behalf of policymakers and all of that, right? Because, I mean, I, I, I'm an adopted American citizen. I really believe in that in, in America and, and the ideals it holds, um, particularly for the education for all. I'm completely fascinated by the Americans, um, you know, 
generosity to take any child that comes into the country, regardless of how they came in, and ensure that they're educated. Um, so I think this program has value in that way uh, for, for many, many students. And if those students become global citizens for America, even better, because it has there's American competitiveness at stake here. So I think um, it's, it's um, so it'll be nice if more policymakers become aware. Now, Davin, you know us, so we don't do this. We don't have people that go lobby. And we, so we, we are we are a word of mouth. So schools talk to other schools and that's how we grow. Uh, which is fine, but yeah, it might be good for uh, for more schools to recognize the value of this program. Well, it's you know, it's hard, right? It is a hard program. I went to a, an IB high school. My dad t uh, taught IB anthropology, and uh, I chose to not go for the program um, because I think I just looked at it and I said it's not worth it. You know, I be, for one of the reasons I mentioned earlier before. Like I'm 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 pretty pretty firm in the humanities, right? Math and uh, and, and science tended to, to sort of evade me. And so I thought if I'm going to have to sort of put the same amount of effort into every subject area across the discipline, this is, it's not going to be worth it to me. Um, and, you know, I worry about students who, and I had, you know, parents who were highly educated, you know, graduate school, et cetera. My dad was an educator, et cetera. And I, I so I had plenty of support to kind of deal with this, but I wonder, I, I worry about students who, who enter into a system, especially given that, you know, in, in a lot of public schools, and especially in the Rochester City School District, uh, public education is just, has, has, I would say, had never been in a worse position in terms of the amount of financing they have to support students in whatever effort they're, they're, they're seeking academic, but, but in a lot of instances, otherwise, right? These counselors and, and folks are having to deal with other kinds of life issues that have nothing to do with their academics, and so that, that can really get in the way. And so I worry about students who are given the opportunity to pursue the IB program and told that this can really change you for the better and this can give you a leg up into college or whatever uh, can lead on to that. But then they find that, the, that, that that it is sort of too hard for them and then it's not worth it. And I wonder, you know, is that is that still a win for them to try and see that it's that it's out of reach? Yeah, I, I think the, the beauty about this is that if run well, you know, and uh, like all things, you know, the student doesn't have to do the highest level math course, right? So, I mean, I, you know, I recently, my, my son finished uh, college recently, but when he was going through high school, I looked at the math and it was, and it wasn't an IB school, it was just a regular, regular old, um, you know, private school. And the amount of math that he had to do is really, you know, quite, quite, Awesome. So there was no escaping that because, you know, schools, children still have to do math in American high schools that I know. So th the point is in the IB, you wouldn't. So if you were really good at um, humanities, we, we asked you to take the highest level um, humanities course, which is called a higher level course to push yourself, right? Because you need to push yourself um, to, to test the limits of your uh, knowledge gain. And if you're weak in, say, or you feel you're weak in math because, you know, nobody's innately born to do one thing or the other, we, we ask you to take a lower uh, uh, course that, you know, suits your abilities. Um, so I think we situate, but to, I take your point. I hear this all the time. In fact, I just finished having a conversation with our um, chief academic officer because we're going to be reviewing this program, and I'd like the review to be done from the point of view of a child today. You know, what in today's age do we need to prepare this child for? And does it need, is, is, it, is this level of rigor needed when we're asking the child to do everything? But I have to tell you, I also speak to graduates of the program. And, you know, I was speaking to, um, just throwing names out, at a Harvard professor, a business just professor a, at Harvard. Names. It's just names. Yeah. It's just an arbitrary college. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the part of it. <laughs> it's so, a really okay. nice little com it's a community college in Boston, right? I yeah. think so. Yep. I think so. I think it's very old. Mm. You know, the buildings. Well, yeah, forward. it needs some work. Yeah. 
So, uh, and you know, the, people continually tell me it's been one of the best preparations they've had in life, educational preparations they've had in life. So I think you, you, we, we are looking at it. We've just done a study called um, student load because we are worried about it. Um, you know, but one of the things we, we have students introduce our conference speakers. So I remember this IB student once said, um, I had a choice in my high school. I could take the escalator which is other programs, or I could take the stairs, which was the IB. And I chose to take the stairs. And every day that stair, you know, I felt the stair and I stuck with it anyway. And those, so, so I think it's a choice, you know, that students can make. But, but I do take your point. It, you know, there's a question of is it, is, it, is it for everyone? I don't know. Is it, could we do um, more to review the program? So it's, um, yes, we are going to be doing it. Well, it's, I know that it's a constant. Yeah. Uh, process of calibration that you guys are engaged in, yep. you know, and I know that these are things that are on your mind. And then to that end, you've recently launched a, a sort of more vocational track. Is that right? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we've launched a program, um, uh, called the career program. So it's the, uh, the IB CP is just called career program. And okay. um, which is we we had a lot of feedback from schools saying you're focused mostly on those children who want to go into, um, you know, a university right after or, you know, post uh, post high school education, post high school education. But what about those students who want to do um, go into a track of a professional track? Right. Um, which, you know, as you know, you probably if you're keeping up with the studies, you know, McKenzie and all are showing how, how much a need there is for children to be graduating with certain schools to fit, uh, fit needs of businesses. So we launched this program. Um, you know, it's a different, it, it is to sit alongside a professional track, whether the profession is uh, a phlebotomist, whatever, whatever the child chooses. And so students have to do a couple of IB courses and they still have to take our core, which is what we believe in. So prepare, preparation for life, how do you study, how do you reflect, how do you think, uh, all of that. And so, yeah, that's, we're just launching that now in, um, in schools that don't have a diploma program. So that's going well. We're, we're pleased with it. Great. So just a, a couple more things. Um, there are a lot of students out there, you know, and we met, I met a lot of them at once at the IB World Student Conference at Rochester, yeah. and they had so much fun. And it was really a delight to be able to see all of these students who I think have been told for a very long time, barring those who are at like United World Colleges who, who are who are all in and amongst people from all over a different country, but particularly the United States, who are told that this is an international curriculum. And trust us, there are kids over there in Mozambique who are doing the same thing in Hong Kong and so on. And here it was sort of made plain to them that, no, in fact, this is actually true. This is really happening. <laughs> you know, this isn't a Wizard of Oz scenario. There really is this, uh, this, this whole universe of people that are doing the same thing that I'm doing. And so it was really, really cool. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've recognized and been able to sort of advise a little bit to the extent that I'm able or in a capacity to do so is that there really is for lack of I guess sort of a more gender neutral term you're sort of a band of brothers in this right there is there is a really yeah. good sort of um group therapy that that sort of uh comes up around executing this program and that's one of the things that I know that a lot of the students that are in the program feel is like we're in this together we're doing this you know and we're going to make it out of here alive right um, we may need to <laughs> we may need to take some people with us you know we may need to take some folks out on the way but we're going to make it out alive um, but it, it's still there's a lot of stress so what would your message be to these students who are like because that's another thing that I have to deal with a lot too and one of the reasons that we're active in trying to promote this as as valuable is is that there's always sort of the threat looms to bail on it right to to try it for a semester a year and say nope i'm out i can't do it anymore because the stress or whatever else what would you say to those students who are maybe trying to make up their mind about do i stick with this or do i bail i think stick with it to the extent that you can but if it is becoming damaging then i wouldn't call it bail but know your limits right so so i used to be um mm -hmm. Uh, I used to be a runner because I can't, I don't run anymore. Uh, and I used to go hiking. You know, to hike. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> yes. That's, that's why I risk. don't, that's why I don't run. Yeah. I'm preserving <laughs> my knees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's I the can't. number one reason. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you used to be a runner. 
yeah. So I think you know when you you know you you, you know the first mile you run, you know you, you just want to like it's tough, and you're like I just want to go back to bed and sleep. But the bo- point is that your body, you condition your body to accept more, and then it becomes easy, right? Like first you're running one mile, next you're running two miles, next you're running three, then you're running a half, uh, which was about the extent I could run. Um, and then I, so, so I'll, I'll continue that metaphor actually, because I wanted to actually run a marathon, but around the 14 mile training run, um, you know, I got what most runners get, which is a plantar fasciitis, right? So it was a decision point. I could have gone to the uh, podiatrist or whatever and said, I'm going to fill myself drugs and just going to run through this pain because the goal is I want to get to the marathon. Or I could decide that, no, you know, this is what my body could take. I'm happy. I'm going to adjust to this. Uh, this is what I can do now. And then find like another sport where I could continually, you know. So I think, you know, because obviously my body and my feet and, and I wasn't committed to do anything more than that to, to in that particular thing. So I think for the student, it's always good to know, um, you know, let me try something that is highly rigorous. We are, there are no bones about it. It's an academically rigorous program. So the, you know, to, to try something like that. And if it is getting to be too painful, they know what their limits are. So they've pushed themselves to knowing what they can take at this time. They know what is what is causing them stress. And then they can figure out, okay, this time, you know, let's, let's stop this now. And um, if I want to, I'll try it again. But at least I know myself a lot better now. I know how far I can go. And maybe I'll take a rest and come back or do it in my bachelor's. I'm better prepared for my future because I know what I can do, right? It's not it's not a game. You shouldn't let anyone else set the goalposts for you, right? Mm-hmm. I think you have to figure out what are the... Uh, because you constantly feel bad if you're operating with other people's expectations of, um, you know, where you're... And the point is that I... I mean, and, the, and that IB does not have fixed goalposts, that you have the capability to construct yeah. those for you. Yeah. Right. It is not physically injurious to pursue IB. By and large, incredibly rewarding. And I speak very much uh, in favor of the program as somebody who stood in awe of people in my own high school who did it and went on to do fabulous things. And I look back and I say, I shouldn't have doubted myself that I probably could have absolutely done it. Um, and, and I know that as a university representative and as somebody that works in admissions, this is the students that are coming in, as I've already mentioned a couple of times, having had this experience under their belt, they've just got so much more richness mm-hmm. to add not just in the context of the admissions process, but also once they get to campus, they've just got these, so much texture um, that they're bringing to their experience. And then that, you know, they get there in the first year and in, in large part, they, they get there and they're like, wow, this is kind of easy or certainly at least not as hard as I thought it was, you know, and that, that is, man, that is a good feeling, I think, for those guys who've been fretting their whole life about the, the difficulty of college, and they get there, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's because, to continue your metaphor, they are in shape, right? They have already been running, and, uh, and, they're, and they're ready to continue. Well, hey, I, I am so glad that you took time to talk to me. I really, really appreciate it. If you end up in, if you're ever in New York City, come on over. You want speed, though, if we're in the car. I will be going the speed limiter under for the foreseeable future. That is good. That is good, because I thought maybe I need to bring some money to pay the fines or something. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And, yeah. um, and, and my, Siva, please. Yeah, Siva, thank you, okay, Siva. I will call you Siva. I will not call you Dr. Kumari. Um, yeah. And uh, my regards to um, The Hague, uh, the International Criminal Court, and, um, and all the people yeah, doing the good work there. Uh, really, I'm not kidding. What? It's right the International there. Criminal Court? It's right there, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, I don't, I mean, I could show you my, my street. It's a pretty common Manhattan yeah. street. There's n- plenty of international criminals, I'm sure, none of them being brought to justice. Um, I'll keep an eye out, though, for, uh, for them and, and send them your way. Okay. Thank you. So great. She is so great. Um, really, really fun to talk to her. I was really glad she took the time. It seems that, um, you know, she tossed a good amount of responsibility back on the individual school as far as making the decision to bring the program into a school or district in the first place. And then again, to be clear on the fact that they have the resources to continue to support its success, right? So saying it's not really up to us to make sure the kids do well. We believe we provide a program that kids can do well in. Now it's your turn. Uh, to make sure that they can cross 
the finish line there. So the schools who choose to undertake the program are, in my opinion, right to have the responsibility for the program's success if they choose to implement it. Right. I'm not sure how much students at that age, however, and in this day and age, with the degree of stress they feel from peers, parents, and us, can necessarily be expected to understand the full extent of the responsibility they're undertaking in high school. She encourages kids to know their limits, but I'm not sure that you can know your limits until you're right up against them sometimes in high school. And once you reach a limit that's too much, sometimes it may be too late and your grades are going to suffer. And so to that end, we hope and are confident that schools and IB coordinators are appropriately guiding their students because they're often more aware of students' limits than the students themselves are, right? Um, so good job, good work, IB coordinators and guidance counselors. I can say that as an admissions counselor, a hard-earned B is always worth more than an easily achieved A, and that's especially true in IB. I think you're going to hear that across the board from people on my side of things. Getting straight A's is never the point of the IB, and it really isn't the point of high school, okay? The point is to learn stuff, and you can learn plenty with a B, or, as I did, you could learn plenty with a D in freshman algebra and learn that you never want to go back to summer school again because that was awful, right? Plenty to learn. Also of note, okay, the IB released a report last year showing huge gains in growth of availability and success in the IB program in Title I schools, which are American schools with a high percentage of low-income students. They're making gains to offer this to all kinds of communities, responding to some criticism that this is a program mainly for rich districts and therefore rich kids, because I think it is expensive to implement. And but more broadly, responding to a national truth that poor kids have less access to good college prep coursework. Mainly, this study found that two-thirds of IB programs in public schools are available to low-income students, and that while all IB students in public schools in the U.S. are going to some form of continuing education right after high school at a rate of 81%, students at Title I schools are enrolling in post-secondary education immediately after graduation at a rate of 79% if they're also in the IB program. Nationally, low-income students in American public schools go right to post-secondary study at a rate of only 46%. For perspective, the national rate for all American students going to college right after high school is 66%. I'll put the report brief on the website for you to check out, crushpodcast.com, but this is good work that the IB is doing uh, to create access in communities that need it. Okay, final dare to student listeners in general. I dare you to consider colleges outside the United States. The distance thing is totally irrelevant especially for Northeasterners who have closer access to McGill and the University of Toronto than they might have even to like Northwestern or the University of Virginia, certainly schools in California. Hey, at Toronto, where people like Malcolm Gladwell eked out a living barely after graduation, total cost of attendance is between 16 grand and 23 grand. And that's going to look a lot better to a lot of families in this country, right? So, um, not a bad option. P.S. Hey, the uh, drinking age is 18 and Donald Trump won't be your president. So really, what are you waiting for? All right. Head over to crushpodcast.com for some links to studies and stuff I've referenced here. Give me a shout. 50386-CRUSH. Leave a message. Tweet at crushpod. Send me an email. Crushpod at gmail.com. Thanks for being here, you guys. See you next time.